you know, our adipose tissue, I see it a bit like a sponge that your, your body, your adipose tissue can soak up a fair bit of energy quite easily, but it gets to a point where it gets over full. And then we get to that point where all that energy just sort of backs up and overflows into our bloodstream and our vital organs. And, you know, that's the problem. That's the metabolic dysfunction that we're all rightly so afraid of these days that's the root cause of so many of our modern metabolic diseases and and we overfill our adipose tissue and our everything else because we're just eating low satiety nutrient poor foods that we can't stop eating we just keep eating them it's this magic fat carb combo that food manufacturers have worked out that we just keep eating and eating and eating and you are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 259. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lover. Welcome to another episode in the fasting series. Now, this series is intended to provide education about the potential health and longevity benefits of different forms of fasting, including time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and extended water-only fasting. Please be aware that in this series, we will be discussing different forms of fasting and food restriction. And in some cases, there will be references to body size and weight. This material and these methods are not appropriate for children, pregnant people, or people with certain medical conditions. Please do not attempt these practices without medical supervision, as it could be very dangerous. These concepts may also be triggering for people with disordered eating or eating disorders, so please practice discretion before listening to these episodes. Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. In this episode for the fasting series, I have a conversation with Marty Kendall, and it is a fantastic conversation. So you definitely want to listen to this episode. So Marty Kendall is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. His interest in nutrition began over 20 years ago to help his wife, Monica, gain control of her type 1 diabetes. Since then, he has worked to develop a systematized approach to nutrition tailored to various goals. Marty shares his learnings at optimizingnutrition.com and his Optimized Nutrition podcast. Marty also runs data-driven fasting and the Macros and Micros Masterclass to guide people on their journey of nutritional optimization. So in this episode, we talk about energy toxicity, which is a concept that I've never talked about on the podcast before, but I think it is a very important concept. We also talked about 
oxidative priority, which is very important to understand when it comes to how we choose what to eat and it relates to energy toxicity. We also talk about the personal fat threshold. Now, this is a concept that has been brought up in the past in a conversation with Dr. Giles Yo, but we talk about it a little bit deeper and further in this podcast. Marty answers the question, are there any foods with free calories that don't count? We also talk about fat. Is it as satiating as it's been promoted to be? What is the role of fat in insulin resistance? And we talk about something that he has been using in his community called the minimum effective dose of fasting. What are the problems that he has seen with prolonged or extended day fasting? And whether what we eat when we aren't fasting truly matters. We also talk about his data-driven fasting approach. And I have him discuss what are some of the guiding principles that he's discovered as he's learned from the research and from the data that he's analyzed from the participants in his programs. We also go through our rapid fire session where we talk about his favorite thing about fasting, his biggest fasting pet peeve, and what is one thing that he wants people to know about fasting. So this episode, I was able to get all the questions in in an hour. I think there's like 20 questions he did a fantastic job answering all of them. So just so you know, this is a dense episode. If you're into this topic, you may want to take notes. You may want to listen more than once because there are a lot of concepts that we cover that I think are super valuable to understand. Veggie lovers, thank you for coming on this fasting journey with me and learning more about the benefits of fasting and also delve more into the power of nutrition and some of the other ways that we can learn about optimal nutrition for our bodies. I appreciate you so much. So now let's welcome Marty Kendall. Marty Kendall, all the way from Australia. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you from Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, great to chat. Real honor. Looking forward to this chat. I love it. Well, I've heard that Australians and New Zealanders get very annoyed when people confuse the accents. And now I think I've had enough people on my show that I can start to tell the difference between the accents. Oh, wow. So maybe maybe someday I will be really sophisticated at that. But I love the accent. So this is going to be fun for that reason as well. So I really appreciate having you. Um, I actually don't know exactly how I found you, but definitely through Google, the Google, you know, wormhole. Because I have been, once again, practicing intermittent fasting. And this time, for health reasons, I started to develop a lot of fatigue and joint pains. And I probably have some weird, difficult to diagnose autoimmune thing is what I think. And instead yep. of going all the way to the True North Health Center and fasting for like seven to 14 days, I thought, well, why don't I just start with something I can do on my own and tweak it from there? And um, mm. it's been almost miraculous. So now I'm just like, once again, on the fasting bandwagon. But when I found your stuff, I was so excited because you are really, really smart. And a lot of the things you talk about I've read before, I understand, but you were able to put everything together, but in a way 
that it's just easy to understand. You explain it very well, but you're also not religious about it, which is cool because I can tell that you are a scientist at heart. And so <laughs> I, I trust what you say, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I trust what you say. So, so I'm glad you were able to come on my podcast. So let's start with your journey. How did you even end up delving into the world of fasting and nutrition? Because you're an engineer. So how did that happen? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm an engineer by day and um, I happened to marry... Monica, who has type 1 diabetes since she was 10, so um, that was 20 years ago, and when we started thinking about having kids, and you look at all the long list of complications of a diabetic pregnancy, things started to get serious, and I tried to understand the role of, you know, how to better dose for, um, you know, different foods with insulin to help her maintain better blood sugars and more stable blood sugars, and that really helped, and then maybe... 10 years ago or so, I was, you know, I got to the point where I was a bit overweight and started to think about taking nutrition a bit more seriously. And there's just so much confusing information out there. Everybody's got their, like you said, religious dogmatic approach to nutrition. And I thought, well, let's, let's quantify this and um, I'll put a few numbers behind it. So as I kept diving into the detail more, I found more fascinating ways I could quantify it. And yeah, I'm not a doctor, so I just explain it in a way that I can understand. And yeah, it's great to see it resonating with people out there who read my stuff and go, oh, okay, I get that. It's not just medical ease. I try to look at the big picture, nutrition and biology as a, a systems approach. So Yeah, but you're also able to put data behind it and analyze data yeah. and kind of look at trends which is really cool. And yep. we'll talk about that more later when we talk about your data-driven fasting group and all of that. Yep. Do you mind talking a little bit about your son? It sounds like your son was diagnosed with diabetes yeah. about a year ago as well. Yeah, yeah. just uh, nearly a year ago now. So yeah, it was. Um, he was doing some squats. He's into powerlifting. And um, I was you know, ragging him a little bit about his food choices sometimes. And I said, your body won't cope with that. And one day he wanted to test his blood sugars and it was 23 millimolar, which is, I don't know, off the chart, 400 or something in, in milligrams per deciliter, which was, you know, I was like, that's not good. <laughs> I think I know what that means. And um, yeah, so we went off to the hospital and started insulin the next day. And um, he'd been losing a bit of weight. But we just thought growth spurt, he's really athletic and active and um, he was sort of trying to lean down. But uh, yeah, he was down to 77 kilos and within a couple of months of being on insulin, he was you know, up to 90 kilos and uh, you know, lifting you know, back into his powerlifting, he put 40 kilos on his deadlift and um, he set an Australian deadlift record a month and a half ago and he's trying for a world record deadlift record 10th of December. So in about a week. So yeah, it hasn't wow. stopped him. And like, it's definitely a, a shock and we're in grief for the first six weeks or so, but then it's like, okay, we know what to do here. I've been diving into this world for, you know, 10 years, 20 years trying to understand it. So we knew exactly what to do and how to manage it and how to eat to get stable blood sugars and keep him off the roller coaster. And um, he's thriving. So that's great. It's amazing. And yeah, you're right. No matter what, when anybody 
and your family gets diagnosed with a chronic condition that's incurable, that's got to be so hard emotionally. But if you also look at it the other way, what better family for him to be part of than yours? <laughs> Few people because said that. <laughs> I mean, you you know exactly how to how to manage it. How how about his mindset? How did he deal with it? Um, he's been really like stoic about it. It's like, yeah, it is what it is. I'm not gonna grieve it. I'm just gonna get on and and thrive. And yeah, he he has had much less grief than us. It's like, yeah, life deals you what it deals you when you do what you can with it. And yeah, I think because it makes you pay more attention to what you're eating, um, it can be an advantage. I don't think many people have to think that hard about what they eat, but when they do, it can really be a superpower. And yeah, he's, he's thriving. So yeah, yeah. no, no regrets. Well, that's so cool, too, that he's a power lifter and setting records all yeah. over the place, because that also encourages other people who have been affected by this diagnosis and feel, you know, a lot of times it's almost like they're told, be careful, don't do anything. You know, this could yeah. be dangerous for you. And there he is, like setting records and lifting tons of weight. So I'm so glad <laughs> he's able I'm, to like set that I'm example doing powerlifting training with him and trying to keep up with him. And he's just like a beast. And yeah, so he's outstripped <laughs> me. And uh, I just try to keep up as the old guy, trying to keep up with the sun. That's funny. Yeah, my husband and I started doing some powerlifting about 18 months ago. And we also, we have a 17 year old who will be 18 year old next year. And yeah, I wouldn't even try to compete with him. It's like literally like <laughs> not even in the same planet as far as like how much I would ever be able to lift. So like, you know, you're the young and strapping lad. You can, you can do that. Okay. So there is a concept and a term that I read in your materials and I was very intrigued by it. It makes a lot mm. of sense to me and I would love to, for you to talk more about it. And that's energy toxicity. What is energy toxicity? Yeah. Um, this is coined by a friend of mine, Ted Naiman, but I've picked up and I've been using it a fair bit just because a lot of people have been talking about insulin resistance and insulin toxicity and how evil insulin is. And yeah, elevated insulin is a, is a problem, but really from a type one point of view, I can see insulin and, and the real role of insulin that really just acts to hold your stored energy in storage. So insulin works like the break on your metabolism that slows the release of energy into your bloodstream. So if you don't have insulin, basically all the stored energy flows into your bloodstream like an uncontrolled type 1 diabetic and they, they waste away all their muscle and, and glucose and fat just stream into the bloodstream and it's it's a disaster. But... Um, the the root cause for everybody who's got a functioning pancreas, the reason why their insulin is high is just because they're holding so much extra energy in their in their body. Um, you know, our adipose tissue. I see it a bit like a sponge that your your body, your adipose tissue, can soak up a fair bit of energy quite easily. But it gets to a point where it gets over full, and then we get to that point where all that energy just sort of backs up and overflows into our bloodstream and our vital organs and you know that's the problem that's the metabolic dysfunction that we're all 
rightly so afraid of these days that's the root cause of so many of our modern metabolic diseases and and we overfill our adipose tissue and our everything else because we're just eating low satiety nutrient poor foods that we can't stop eating we just keep eating them it's this magic fat carb combo that food manufacturers have worked out that we just keep eating and eating and eating and we just overfill our fat stores and therefore the insulin has to keep ramping up to hold that in storage. Yeah, that's super interesting because I had never thought of insulin quite that way. But I, what I'm thinking yeah. in my head, what I'm picturing is insulin like a bunch of bouncers, like trying to prevent people <laughs> from getting into the club, you know, and then you yeah. have too many people and there's this big crowd and it starts breaking down. You have to have more bouncers. And then that's where you get the insulin resistance, more and more insulin. But yeah. pretty soon it's not working still. And people are like leaking through on all the sides and, you know, getting into yeah. the club, which is, you know, the, the bloodstream. So, but I think yeah. what's important is because also delving into this fasting world, which is a lot yeah. of times hand in hand with keto, right? So a lot of the fasting yeah. world is yeah. also the keto world. And then there's this belief or mantra that pretty much insulin is evil, but we know yeah. that that there's some really you good things insulin. about insulin, right? Especially for your family, <laughs> y'all are, are totally yeah, aware my, of that, that insulin is not evil. my family be dead without insulin <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a couple of weeks. So and yeah, it's we, more about, insulin's a good thing. And it's more about balancing it, but also yeah. thinking about how how these all of these people trying to get into the club, why are there so many people? So let's talk yeah. about this modern environment. You started talking about that a little bit. What is it that triggers us to overeat in our modern environment? Yeah, um, that's a topic that I've been completely fascinated by and, and trying to quantify um, for a few years now. And luckily, I've had a whole bunch of data from people doing our challenges and they upload the data into Nutrient Optimizer. So I get the macro and micronutrient data. But I've sort of come to understand that like in our in our you know pre-modern environment we would have had energy from carbs and energy from fat at different seasons maybe there's more carbs in summer more fat in in winter available and we sort of go through that cycle where there's one fuel source or another maybe in autumn you've got a bit more nuts and fruit with fructose that are fill both fuel tanks at once but most of the time you get one or the other and you get a, a dopamine spike from getting energy and your body says well done you you found energy and you're going to survive and you get this positive dopamine spike but what the studies have shown and our data is that when we get foods that have the two together you've got fat and carbs you get a double dopamine spike, which is great. It feels great. The donut, the cookie, the cake feels amazing. But you get a bigger dopamine spike. And it's sort of an addictive-like sort of behavior that it goes, wow, that was incredible. And then your dopamine crashes back down. I was like, how do I get that dopamine hit again? I go for the, the cookies and the croissants and the, those energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods with low protein, low fiber, minimal micronutrients and lots of fat and carb at the same time and those foods just magically fill our glucose fuel tank and our fat fuel tank in our body and we love them and food manufacturers love selling them to us because they're so cheap and so easy to sell and you know we just keep eating them and eating them and then we get to that point where we've got like too much energy stored in our body energy toxicity and then insulin has to keep on ramping up to hold all that energy in storage yeah, it's so interesting because 
it actually is a pretty effective way to get lots of energy at once is getting yeah. that fat and that carb together. It's almost like our body was yep. made to like, yes, if we get that combination, it's yep. good for our survival. But the problem mm -hmm. is, and now in our modern environment, there is no scarcity pretty much at all. Yeah. There's just overabundance. And in our culture, like the Western culture, overeating is encouraged. So like, I feel like all the commercials, everything, it's it's kind of like encouraged uh, yeah. that we should yeah. overeat and it's it's part of our way of life. And so it's kind of a perpetual feeding on this very effective fuel to mm. get lots of energy in our bodies. And like you said, then you overflow mm. with that energy and then bad things yeah. happen to our metabolism. But I just wanna bring up my one of my pet peeves that I, yeah. I am so glad that you know this because nobody else knows this People call cake and cookies and crackers, they call them carbs. And they're like, oh, yeah, stop eating bad carbs. carbs, apparently. Yeah, carbs. But it's like <laughs> so much fat. Like they totally forget that there's like all this fat in there. And so then they're like demonizing, quote, carbs, when really yep. it's like a huge mixture of fat plus carbs. Yep. So yep. so thank you for knowing that, Marty. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And if you look at the, the, the Australian diet, there was a recent study that published that showed the Australian diet is yeah, average 43% carbohydrate. You look at the American diet, it's that magic 43, 45% carbohydrate and the rest is fat. So it's this magic combination of fat and carbs together that is, you know, hyper palatable, hyper profitable and obesogenic. And we just keep eating it. And uh, that's yeah. what bad carbs are. Um, you know, it's the fat and carb together that aligns perfectly with the data that that's, that's the most interesting thing from my analysis. Cause you know, I, I came from a lowish carb background with type one diabetes, but carbs are bad and the whole keto low carb scene thinks you know carbs insulin fat gain automatically eat carbs get fat but it's that combination of fat and carbs together that uh, we eat more if you get above say 50 60 percent carbs it's really hard to overeat those low fat foods and similarly on the other end if you go 10 to 20 percent carbs it's really hard to overeat those foods but it's that magical zone in the middle and before modern agriculture it was breast milk and nuts and those sorts of things that there were, were the, the magic combination of fat and carbs together that helped us grow but today you know nuts uh, nuts and breast milk would be way healthier than the majority of what people eat um, yeah. you're so right about breast milk um we talk about protein a lot and i know that you know you've learned a lot about protein in your group too yep. but uh, breast milk is a very low protein food yeah. And it's, it's carbs yeah. and fat and some, Together. a lot of fat. Some moms have a lot of fat <laughs> that they make a lot of fat in their milk. And those babies, they're delicious. I don't eat them. Yeah. Okay. Nobody get the idea that I'm eating the babies, but when I'm hugging the babies, they're so soft and squishy like marshmallows and it's so wonderful. I love it. But, um, yeah. but yes, that's important to know about breast milk whenever we get into the protein discussion. Yeah.
But yeah, I I tend to classify those foods because the majority of those foods that we're eating that have that combination are our processed and ultra processed foods. Mm. We can mm. absolutely mm. eat that combination from whole foods too, but most of the time it's going to be like we said, our cakes, our you know cookies, yeah. chips, crackers, those kinds of things that yeah. were made in the factory and put in a package, mm. and then it's just easy for us to just sit on the couch yeah. and just one after another, you know. Okay, let's know. switch um, the gears a little bit and talk about oxidative priority. This is a really important concept that not very many yeah. people know about it. And I've never discussed it on the podcast before, but I think it's super important to understand. So what is oxidative priority? Yeah, it, uh, it's just the order that we burn fuels um, that are available in our body. We're always burning a combination of fat and glucose at the same time. But if you've got a lot of glucose stored in your body basically there's there's a minimal space to store glucose in your muscle and your liver maybe 2000 calories total so that'll get you through a day if you had no fat but you've got a massive amount of fat storage capacity and that's sort of a slow burning diesel sort of fuel where maybe your carbs could be a, a gasoline that's a bit more refined and then you've got alcohol and ketones up the top end which are like your rocket fuel your, your jet propulsion so if you drink alcohol there's no room to store that other than in your blood and you've got to clear it it's effectively a poison for your body so you've got to get rid of it you'll heat up and feel hot if you drink alcohol because you've just got to clear that immediately carbs are you know your body's going to clear it as a priority but fat it's like well yeah that's a slow burning fuel i can store that the body just goes yeah welcome aboard we'll burn off the carbohydrates first we'll raise insulin to stop the release of energy from our body until we've burnt off those carbohydrates so yeah um, we, it's just the order that we need to burn the, the fuels that we consume yeah so basically what it means is your body is really doing a lot of things at once, but when there's a large amount of something, it has to prioritize what it metabolizes first, right? So you're saying mm. alcohol is first because it's a toxin and we can't just let yep. it linger around all day because it, it would be really yep. bad for us. So it has to focus on that. We're gonna try to eliminate yep. that. And then what's the next one? Protein and then carbohydrates and then fat yep. usually. Yeah, if you're eating excess protein that your body doesn't need, it'll say, well, I need to get rid of that because there's nowhere to store it. But most people, you know. Most people don't get in an excess. In our modern world are, are not, not eating excess protein. So um, okay. there's not a lot of excess protein to burn off. But maybe if you're chowing down on a, a, a ton of protein shakes. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. which is the question I had for you. So whenever you are just consuming sufficient amounts to go back to your muscles and to repair and all yep. that stuff. Yeah. It just puts it in those places. It's, you know, organizing yeah. stuff, putting stuff in places. Yep. But I think the yep. really important yep. thing is that when it comes to fat, it's really easy when we have excess fat for our body to just be like, you know what? We've got all this storage space. We have like yep. all of these storage yep. rooms for fat. We're just tuck it in here. We're not going to work on metabolizing it because actually yeah. it's good for us. And the body's probably thinking yeah. it's good for us to have extra storage because, you know, we're going to hit a famine in a week, except the famine yeah. never comes, right? <laughs> famine never comes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and if you've got your, 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 um, your sponge, your adipose tissue full of fat, then all the fuels sort of bank up. So that's effectively why we see high blood glucose because all the fuels are backing up in the system so a lot of the time elevated glucose is not due to and diabetes is not necessarily due to eating too many carbohydrates per se it's it's 
also related to having too much energy, particularly fat stored in our body. Mm -hmm. And that's where the insulin resistance also comes into yeah. play, right? So, yep. okay. Yep. So one of the things that you've discovered from the data that you've analyzed from your participants is kind of the advantages of some ways of eating that allow mm. us to eat an amount of food that's not excess in energy yeah. so that we don't get the energy toxicity. So mm. in your oxidative priority article, you admit that a low fat, high carb approach can also successfully lead to satiety. Satiety is so important yep. because otherwise yeah. we just keep eating whatever it is we're eating, right? Cause we're not satiated. Yeah. We don't feel full. We don't yep. feel satisfied. So a high carb, low fat diet can also lead to satiety, which can yep. also lead to an, which will in turn lead to an energy deficit that yep. is needed to access our fat stores, or at least not continue adding to our fat stores and get this energy yeah. toxicity. But yeah. you, you have commented that you feel that for a lot of people, it's unsustainable, or maybe that's what you're seeing from your, from your groups. What is, what is your yeah. opinion on this? Yeah, yeah, no, it's completely fascinating. I was thinking more about that. Um, as a as a dominant society, as I mentioned, even Australia, America, we're all gravitating to the combination of fat and carbs. Um, and if we get to a very low fat, high carb diet, that's really hard to overeat. So if you're just eating veggies and fruit and potatoes and without any added oil that's hard to overeat but then at the other extreme if you cut the carbs and prioritize the protein that lower carb in the data shows that that's also hard to eat as you mentioned you know our data tends to come from a, a lower carb population i heard robbie bambora from mastering diabetes yeah. yesterday on a podcast talking about he encourages people get to get to 15% dietary fat, which in our data is rare, I suppose. So yeah, m most people tend to gravitate back to that carb-fat combo as a natural inclination. We just crave those foods. So um, yeah, but definitely if you could exclude all oils and just eat you know, high starch, high fruit with minimal oil and lots of fiber, then I think you could get a, a higher satiety diet on the other extreme so if you're in that summer extreme where you've just got carbs available or the winter extreme both of those seem to work so you sort of you know we, we divide over low carb versus low fat but really they're right they're both right it's just the combination that you know really messes us up when we've got that combination of the two that don't occur in nature yes okay brilliant and I was actually going to recommend that I would love it as at some point if you reach out to the Mastering Diabetes group. So yeah, yeah it's Robbie Barbero and Cyrus Kambada because they do, they're doing, they're doing the other, the other side mostly is the high carb people, which I've seen work yeah. from our community and being a health coach. But, yeah. but you're right. Cause I'll even say from my own standpoint, personally, I love fat. I love fat. So. I can definitely do low fat and I can sustain it, but the emotional eating side of me, if I want to get yeah. that dopamine hit, if I want to get my fix, 
my body wants the fat with the carbs because that's what exactly yeah. what you said that you if you get that hit and i think part of it too is opiates i think that we're releasing opiates yeah. in that as well um mm. so if you struggle with emotional eating um, and then you start putting more fat in there. It's a slippery slope because you're adding it mm. to that high carb diet. So then you're high mm. carb plus the fat and that magical bliss point combination of goodness, mm. which believe me, mm. I can make all kinds of delicious recipes <laughs> with that bliss point in there. So, but I think it's Definitely. just so cool Definitely. that you were able to see that data, even though your community, there's a lot less people that do that. It's cool that yeah. that came out in the data because I have seen that in front of me and with my coaching clients, yep. I see that work. So, yeah, uh, I, I really want to get more data on the the really extreme low fat to to balance it out. Yeah, we've got a a, a nutrition survey that identifies your micronutrient priorities. So, if anybody wants to take that and jump in and give me more data from their chronometer, that'd be awesome to to flesh yes. that out and get a bigger picture. We've got one hundred and forty thousand days from forty thousand people, but um, always, you know, I'm a data nerd and love more. I love that you're a data nerd. I love that. That's great. <laughs> okay. So here's my wishful thinking question and everybody's wishful yeah. thinking question. Are there any foods with free calories that don't count? Um, I think the short answer is no, but the longer answer is, you know, foods like spinach and asparagus and broccoli and those non-starchy uh, green fibrous water-filled, low-energy-density foods are really hard to eat. So if you just, you know, how much lettuce can you chow down on? How many? How much spinach could you eat in one sitting? Uh, those foods are really hard to overeat. And, like, fiber effectively works as a break on your appetite and fills you up, and there's a limit to how much you can eat over the short term. Um, protein tends to be more satiating over the longer term in terms of, satiety per calorie so you know really low fat low carb higher protein foods tend to be um, very satiating and hard to overeat and then you've got the extra thermic effect of food of that protein so if you were to try and convert that to atp to usable energy in your body it, it takes a lot more energy to convert that and uh, yeah, a lot of the time, the protein just goes into your body to be used anyway without really converting it to energy. So the protein you eat without fat and carbs is sort of a, a sort of as close to a free food as you can get. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's any free food per se, but there's definitely foods that are more satiating and leave you more satisfied and not craving anymore. Yeah. And like you said, starting with the veggies, they're just really low in calorie density. So unless yeah. you turn into a cow and you're eating for like 12 <laughs> or 14 hours straight um, with you know, a few stomachs to break down the extra fiber and absorb even more calories, it is hard to overeat yes. them. But I think what I was trying to get at mostly is that we do have this wishful thinking, especially we hear in the keto community, you can't overeat fat, just keep eating fat. Uh, and you know we hear it yeah. in other communities too, that you can't overeat. But really, I think what it comes down to for me and what I've learned with my body is that even if I'm not doing this for weight loss per se, there is mm. an advantage to not overeating calories. Mm. And I think that that's mm. part of what's happening with what's healing my body because I even saw that you wrote when it comes to autophagy, it's not necessarily the number of hours that you're fasting, 
but probably the calorie deficit in there too is that's helping the autophagy because yeah. your body has to go out and start ripping. It has to start getting stuff out of storage. And as it's getting yeah. things out of storage, it's helping to heal your body as well. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, it's fascinating. Autophagy is very deep rabbit hole, but um, I'm a little bit uh, cynical there that if you fasted for a week and then ate to satiety after that, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods that are going to instantly refill your fuel tanks. And you might be really healthy at the end of that week, but as soon as you ate again, all your blood markers and everything else would be back to how they were and if you've eaten less optimal foods at that point then you know where does that really leave you so yeah it's sort of a, a chipping away at it long term that uh, leads to better, better body composition yeah all right well let's talk about fat a little bit more what is the significance of a personal fat threshold we've kind of talked about a little bit and what happens mm. when you exceed this threshold and what we're talking about is stored fat right so what is what yeah. happens when you exceed this personal stored fat threshold yeah um i mentioned before that your adipose tissue your bum your belly your face all the external fat is sort of like a sponge that you want some fat in there you want some energy to get you through when you're not eating um, but like a sponge it can overfill and it can only absorb so much energy and at that point it overflows and um, Professor Roy Taylor in 1995 did a paper on the personal fat threshold where he noticed that different people develop diabetes at different levels of adiposity so some people can be quite lean just they don't have that much capacity to store fat in their body while some people can grow really 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 large before their adipose tissue taps out and says i can't hold anymore so that's the concept of the personal fat threshold and it's at that point the excess energy starts to flow back into your bloodstream you've got excess fat in your blood and also your glucose tends to elevate as well so just testing your blood sugar is a really good way to ascertain when you wake up what's my blood sugar is it under 100 milligrams per deciliter i'm under my personal fat threshold if it's more elevated than that then hey maybe i need to do some intermittent fasting or look at my diet quality and make sure i'm not in that magical carb fat magical zone that enables us to overeat and um, to get away from that excess energy storage yeah. And one of the reasons I love this concept, I've talked about this as well with Dr. Giles Yeo. I don't know if you've read any of his work. And no, I haven't. So I think it's really important because we're very stuck on body mass index and body size without understanding individual difference, individual differences, mm. genetic differences. And there are some true differences. Some people can actually technically be within a yeah. quote normal B 
BMI and have exceeded yep. their personal fat threshold yep. and start having symptoms of metabolic syndrome. There are some people, as yep. just like you said earlier, they can get quite large. Their fat storage can get quite large and their blood sugars are fine. Their cholesterol is fine. Not that I'm yeah. you know, saying that there's a good or bad or whatever. It's just different ways that people's bodies work and People should find out for themselves instead of just looking at this one number of like, okay, is my BMI yeah. normal? You need to start looking at, okay, how's my sugars? How's my cholesterol? How are my blood pressures? Yeah. What is my body telling me? Are things functioning correctly or not? And have mm. I exceeded mm. this personal fat threshold? And not just looking yeah. at people, you know, walking down the street and being like, oh, that person's unhealthy. That person's unhealthy. We don't know. Every person has their yeah. own set point. Yeah, it's completely fascinating. Like the... Indian and Chinese genetics seem to have a lower personal fat threshold where they can store a limited amount of energy before it overflows, whereas like the Australian Aborigine or New Zealand Maori and sort of indigenous cultures where you think maybe they had to survive longer in a famine, they seem to be better at storing energy in a healthy way before it overflows. And they definitely get to a point where it the adipose tissue taps out and become diabetic and then they're in a potentially even worse situation but they've got a bit more buffer before their uh, adipose tissue says no thank you and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unhealthy now yeah it is it's super fascinating how mm. about the satiety of fat? I mean, we've talked about the high carb, yep. the low carb, but a lot you hear a lot people say, oh, fat is very satiating. Is that true? Yeah. Well, it's it's very satiating if you eat a block of butter and go, wow, I'm really full. But how many <laughs> calories did you eat? How much energy did you consume to get to that point? Um, people in the keto community talk about just eat fat to satiety. And, you know, I, I used to grapple with that idea and didn't quite make sense. But I personally got caught up in the, the keto scene and trying to chase elevated ketones with, with more fat. And then you go, wait up, I'm eating a lot of fat. I'm getting fat. Um, and, and when you look at the data, fat is the least satiating macronutrient per calorie. So when you look at it calorie for, per calorie basis, fat is the least satiating macronutrient. It might keep you fuller for longer, but to get to that point of going, of, I've eaten as much fat as I can, you have to chew through a lot more energy to, to hit that point. So um, if you're getting protein, sometimes it's hard to eliminate all fat because protein tends to come with fat. But, um, you know, just unlimited fat is not a, a great idea for satiety and, and not overeating. Yeah. It's just so energy dense, just like you were saying. Yeah. I mean, a pound of oil has about 4,000 calories. And whenever mm. you're putting a bunch of oil into food or butter or lard or whatever, a mm. little goes a long way, really. It does. So, it does. you know, it, it, maybe it does at some point feel satisfying, but by the time you feel satisfied, you've probably over consumed energy. And then when it comes to this oxidative priority and your body's like, okay, we'll just put this in the storage. That's easy peasy. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, so. know what to do with that. Just go in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Let's talk about fasting now. So what do you mean by the minimum effective dose of fasting? This is super interesting. Yeah. Um, I suppose I was also along with the low carbon keto seen there was a, a big like you said keto and fasting tend to go together and 
I was fascinated by metabolism, um, but I just saw more and more people and myself, you know, you, you don't eat for days at a time. And then what do you eat when you eat again? You, you're, um, you know, maybe you're eating keto or, you know, regardless of what your dietary preferences are, you end up giving yourself excuse to eat a lot more than you otherwise would and your appetite upregulates massively to the point that we you you go into the zombie mode and seek seek out the most energy dense um potentially nutrient poor low fiber low protein foods that are going to refill both fuel tanks as quickly as possible because that's how we've survived you know forever so um yeah and just over the long term, even if you can fast for weeks at a time, it's not necessarily going to lead to optimal body composition, um, more muscle mass, less fat mass, if you continue to refeed on those, those less optimal foods. So the minimal effective dose of, of fasting is really just, you know, came up with the idea just because I live in a diabetes headspace to use your simple blood sugar meter to measure based on your blood sugars when your blood sugar is a little bit lower than what's normal for you you validate your hunger and it's time to eat again and then you do that again and again and again and with our data-driven fasting program that pre-meal blood glucose trigger sort of continues to drop slowly progressively to push you just a little bit harder or a little bit further without getting to the point that you make really poor food choices when you eat again. So you need a little bit of hunger, a little bit of deprivation, but not this Herculean amount of deprivation that always ends in a binge. So yeah, to make the best long-term progress, it's like walking into a gym. You don't lift 200 kilos in the first day because either you can't do it or it'll break you. You just start small and use progressive overload to continually strengthen your body and you can adapt to that and similar with using your blood sugar as a fuel gauge you can just push it just a little bit further a little bit further and use your body use your blood sugar as a fuel gauge to guide when to eat i love that so much i have something that i say for my coaching clients too and it's minimum sustainable effort so what is the minimum amount of things you need to do or behavior that you need to implement in order to reach your goal. Because most of the time we're just like, okay, I'm gonna start running five miles and I'm just gonna eat only salad and I'm gonna sleep for 10 hours. And you know, I'm gonna meditate for two hours a day, you know? And it's like, okay, do you, do you need to do that to get to your goal or not? Because yeah. if you don't need to do that much to get to your goal, it's just gonna be this all or nothing approach, right? You're just gonna go try to do all this stuff it's going to last like two days and then you're just going to quit and not do anything. So I think it's that yeah. similar approach that you're taking and that some people are like, okay, I'm going to go hardcore and not eat for three days. And then they're just like, okay, now I'm going to eat the whole refrigerator and everything in yeah. it. And it's just kind of like this yo-yo going back and forth. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah, you're yeah, seeing yeah. that, which is one of the questions I was going to ask you is what you eat when you're in your feeding window is important. So that is something totally. that you're trying to help people to reach that mindfulness and level of satiety with mm. the appropriate nourishing, good, mm. um, nutrient-dense foods during their feeding window so that it's not this yo-yo effect. Because I've seen it too. You know, I've been kind of trolling some of the forums and different fasting communities. 
and you see that people have great success for the first few weeks and then it stops and then it actually starts to go backwards. <laughs> so, and it's yeah, mostly totally, because totally. of this, you know, what the, the different choices they make during the feeding window. And so I, and I imagine that's- touch with the true hunger signals. Yes, because it's, it, you're going a little too far. So, mm. and so that's the, the data-driven fasting is that you're talking about. Are you seeing yep. a good, and I actually tried this for about two weeks, just so you know. Yeah. So I did your, okay. I did your DDF thing and I was wearing a CGM at the time. So it was a lot easier, okay. yep. but I don't like poking my finger because then my fingers get sore. So I'm a little bit of a whiner and complainer. I'm sorry. So <laughs> y'all, I really, really love owning my own practice. It's been one of the best things I have done. It's one of the proudest achievements of my life besides my kids and, you know, all of the things that of course make us proud as parents, but in my career, owning my own practice has really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And it's been one of the best ways to learn what I'm capable of and to realize that I can figure almost anything out. But I'm gonna be honest, there's just some things that are stressful about owning your own business, whether it's a pediatric practice or anything else, there's just logistical things. And now that we've moved to this new building too, I'll tell you that it's stressful when things don't work, okay? Like when things break or when things just aren't working the way that they're supposed to, it just really affects your mood, it affects your efficiency, and sometimes it just makes you think, why am I even doing this? Whenever you don't own the practice, you could just, you know, shuffle that over to somebody else. But what's really, great and what i really love is having a partner that i can depend on and that i can trust and that's trimed so when i was looking to change my electronic health record my electronic medical system um, uh, about a year ago and i started to explore the different systems i really wanted to be deliberate to find a system that was really going to work that i was going to feel comfortable staying with for the long haul what impressed me about TriMed when I was doing my research is their customer service. And they have five star ratings for their customer service. And I didn't just take that as a matter of fact from what I read online. I actually reached out to these practices and I talked to them and they were all saying the same thing. TriMed is a company that they care about you. They care about your practice. They know you by first name. It is true. I can call and they know who they're talking to. They know who they're helping. And that really just relieves such a burden off my shoulders, knowing that I have somebody that stands by their product. They care about their customers and they're gonna make it right. They're going to help us be more efficient. They're going to help us serve our patients because that's one of their missions. One of their missions is to serve those who serve. They want to make it easier for us to do our jobs. And that's what I have seen being a customer of TriMed for so many months. So if you are a pediatrician or another healthcare provider, whether you own your own practice or you're part of a larger system and y'all are looking to change your electronic medical record and your whole system, your practice management system, look into TriMed. We have been really happy with what we've been receiving for them and really grateful for them. And I'm really thankful that they sponsored this episode of Veggie Doctor Radio, but check them out at trimedtech.com that's t-r-i-m-e-d-t-e-c-h.com 
I promise that you'll really, really love their service. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you wanna join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Um, <laughs> so I didn't try it after my CGM ran out, but I did see progressively that my mm. numbers were coming down for my pre-meal. Mm. So tell me, how did you discover that? Did you discover that mostly through working with Monica or how is it that you were able to determine what was an appropriate number for people that actually determined that, yes, they're getting to that point where their fat stores are being pooled? Yeah, um, there was a study maybe eight years ago that... Um the University of Otago in New Zealand did, where they used a, a fixed number of 70, I think. And then they did another study with another fixed number based on their their waking blood sugars. Um, and I just figured, you know, that's a little bit ridiculous because it's not one size fits all approach. Um, and then it just sort of made sense to me watching my wife's CGM all day and uh, pricking myself and playing with my own blood sugars. But your blood sugar is basically a fuel gauge and it, it goes up after you eat and drops when you don't eat for a while. And it'd be ridiculous for Moni to, you know, have a whole lot of carbs when her blood sugar is elevated. But when her blood sugar gets low again, it's a great time for her to eat a hearty meal. So, yeah. And then after some powerlifting and got a bit fluffier that I wanted to be, I designed a spreadsheet to do it for myself. And hey, this works pretty well. And I learned so much about not just when to eat, but what to eat. And you can learn a lot from how your blood sugars respond to different foods in the short term and the long term. And put the spreadsheet out to a Facebook group. And then we created an app and it's just sort of blown up because people love it because they don't have to track their food to get a long term um energy deficit that leads to you know reversing energy toxicity improving metabolic syndrome and yeah it's come full circle and i'm working with the the gang from auckland university of technology to write up the five thousand people's worth of data and half a million data points we've got from data-driven fasting from all the people who've done it over the last two and a half years so yeah it's great to be able to go back to the people that sort of started it to uh yeah. to help further the science because i think it's fascinating a lot of people focus on the the number after you eat and cgms make you go oh okay how can i how can i stabilize my blood sugars but it, you don't want your blood sugars to go really high but the the important number is your blood sugar before you eat again if that's low you actually need to eat and if it's a little bit lower you're depleting your not just your glucose but your body fat as well yeah it is very fascinating. And I'll tell you, I published my book in 2019. It's about intuitive eating. And one of the yep. sections I was writing about was hunger and satiety. 
And I did mm-hmm. come across a study that they took a group of people and they were trying to find out if there was a predictable glucose number that mm. showed when they got hungry. And that was like one of the only studies I had seen that showed that, yes, there is a consistency that when you see this drop, people actually start to feel hungry. And it wasn't until I saw your group and I was like, this guy is brilliant. Like he's he's actually <laughs> discovered this and nobody talks about this. And it's so fascinating. But in some ways, it's a little bit labor intensive too, right? Because you have to either prick yourself or, you know, check in with your CGM and kind of see, okay, is this correlating or... Is this some other, is this head hunger? Is this true hunger? And it kind of helps you also determine, are you just having a craving and you're bored? Or are you truly, is your, you know, your energy taking a little dive and, and truly is it time to eat? So it is, a, it was a pretty interesting experience for me. I, I thought that I was going to be better at predicting and I wasn't as good <laughs> as I thought. <laughs> yeah, people after a few weeks, they start to be able to guess their blood sugar fairly accurately. And in the app, people rate their, their hunger from one to five based on the perceived hunger. And you definitely see a, a straight line response between perceived hunger and actual blood sugar. So there's definitely once your fuel gauge is low, it's time to eat. But you don't want to let it get too low because imagine if you're driving along the the highway and you run out of fuel and you you know have to get a tow truck to get you off next time you you're out there on the highway you're going to be pulling into every service station to to refuel and it's similar to the same thing if you run out of fuel if you fast for too long your body goes into this preservation mode where it tries to eat more every time it gets an opportunity so that's where just that going back to the minimal effective dose of deprivation and then focusing on nourishing your body again it's just this beautiful cycle that leads over time to a really good outcome I love it. All right. So here is the million dollar question. So I think we've shown already that there's no absolutes and there can be more than one truth. So even with our conversation, I think we can say that there's no absolutes. There can be more than one truth. What are some of your guiding principles that you've discovered as you've learned from the research and also from analyzing the data from the participants in your programs? Do you have a few little nuggets that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing is just understanding ultra-processed food, which tends to be a combination of sugar, refined flour, industrial seed oils, flavors, colorings, and a few smattered synthetic nutrients. If you look at a package and see that combination, it's like the Oreo cookie and everything else in the center aisles of the supermarket. It's like, okay, time to put that back down. I'm not putting it in my shopping cart. And then the opposite of that is prioritizing, giving your body what it actually needs with potentially less energy or at least not too much energy. Um, And yeah, prioritizing actually nourishing your body and then your appetite goes, ah, I've got what I need. I I can settle down and you go, well, I'm not consumed with food all the time. I'm not dreaming about my next meal continually because you've given your body what it needs. It's satisfied until it's time to eat again. So... Um, I suppose maybe the third thing is I've I've spent all this time designing the sharp, shiny tools of how to precisely maximize nutrient density and satiety. And, um, but it's not about jumping from one extreme to another. It's about, okay, what can I change to develop a new sustainable habit? 
And once I've locked that in, I can maintain that, then I can ramp up the intensity just a little bit. And yeah, it's all about the psychology of habit formation that enables people to make long-term progress and zero to hero never, ever, ever worked. So if you know where optimal is, you can move in that direction, but you don't get there overnight and you don't need to. You don't need to go, oh, I don't really want to eat that, but I'm going to eat this awful food on this meal plan that somebody gave me because they said it was optimal. But you just have to go, well, let's swap a few things out from a current diet and improve it just a little bit to move forward and move down the track. Yeah. And what are you willing to do and what's going to be sustainable for you? And I think that's such an important point because a lot of times in the nutrition community, we're like arguing all this stuff, like what's the best diet and no, this is the perfect diet and all this stuff. But then like everybody is eating this like low nutrient density diet so why are yeah. we why are we arguing about the perfect diet when we just need to help <laughs> exactly. people eat more whole foods, eat more nutrient eat a little foods. bit better. Yeah, like totally. I think that that is such a wise way to approach it because no way are we all just going to try to eat one perfect diet anyway. Like we're all humans. I think we can all admit that, right? So I think that that's that's really an important point there. Mm. Mm. The other thing I want to yeah, point I'm out. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you go on. Oh, we've got a, a micronutrient uh, masterclass that guides people to improve their diet and move to a diet quality score of 100. And you can get there if you're really disciplined, but it's so satiating and so nourishing and you lose interest in eating, but you don't want to be there forever. You can't stick there forever because you'll lose too much weight and it's not sustainable at that level. But you just need to move in that direction and, uh, yeah, you'll do so much better. And just understand that the whole food system is full of, you know, sugar, refined flour and industrial seed oils combined into ultra-processed food. And if you avoid that, then you're most of the way home. Yeah, I love it. All right. And, you know, one of the things I love about your stuff is that you admit that when it comes to diet, you're agnostic. You have the data, you show the data, what can work for people, but you actually grew up vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist household till I was 10. So it was, uh, yeah, yeah, the the, the home of um, the, 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 the dietary current dominant belief system, I suppose. So yeah, I've got a fascinating aspect point of view on different points of view so yeah Yeah. so at least i could feel that you can you can empathize with some of us vegans too because yeah. you at least grew oh, up yeah. in that culture a little bit so you know yeah yeah, so yeah. i know and that I, it's I not that you I, don't I, hate I, vegans no i and I, I i rebel i struggle with the extreme of carnivore and keto and you know we can design a diet for anybody if they want to be vegetarian or plant-based for religious or ethical reasons like we've got a system that enables them to get the nutrients on whichever preferred diet they want to follow and that's the most important thing if if you're if that's your preference then let's maximize the nutrients within that preference so yeah really passionate about making nutrient density and satiety approachable for anybody that your diet doesn't need it need a name or a belief system just enough nutrients Thank you so much. What do you wish more people knew? 
Just to make those small changes and move towards optimal and understand that, uh, yeah, your body needs to be nourished. It's not about deprivation. Your body is craving. It needs a balance between nutrients and energy and just depriving yourself won't lead where you want it to be in the long term. You just need to love your body by nourishing it and giving it what it needs. Oh, that's a beautiful quote. Do you practice intermittent fasting on a regular basis or is that part of your lifestyle at all? Yeah, well, I live it guiding people through this this process of nutritional optimization and data-driven fasting all the time. Um, periodically when I go, okay, I've tried to gain strength for a bit too long and you get a bit bigger than you want it to be, you pull out the blood sugar meter and um, do the data-driven fasting. So I'm doing that at the moment just to dial things back in a little bit and yeah, it's amazingly effective every time you do it and that's the great thing about it you can just pick it up again and dial it in just a little bit more without i don't think it's too much effort checking your blood sugar a couple of times a day and uh, once you get over the queasiness of going okay i drew my blood hey i got a number oh okay. i've gamified it and you know, once you once you fall in love with the gamification of you know i'm trying to get a little bit lower blood sugar and oh that food did that and that food did that it's just a, a fascinating puzzle that you understand your body yeah, no, I agree. No, I loved wearing the CGM. I got a little obsessed with it. I'd be checking it all the time obsessively, but I just don't like poking my finger because then my fingers get sore afterwards. So anytime yeah, I touch something, I, I just it do it hurts. on my forearm here. So it's it's really oh. easy. You can just prick your forearm and yeah. You know, as long works. as you stay consistent really with painless. the spot. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I'll try that next time though. I don't. The blood doesn't bother me. It's more that I don't like that feeling yeah. on my fingers. But I might You're give a that a try. Okay, real quick, let's do a rapid fire section because we have done so great with time, Marty. You're just able to answer these questions <laughs> phenomenally. So what's your favorite thing about fasting? Um, just the feeling of mental clarity and uh, not being obsessed with food. You can just get on with doing what you wanted to do and have that clarity. We always find people that come into our groups with these muddled thoughts and can't find anything and but once their blood sugars get under control you know there's massive improvements in mental clarity and being able to do what they want to do and that's a beautiful thing yeah i agree that brain fog is so irritating to me because i need to use my brain all the time Mm -hmm. and when i feel that fogginess it's awful so i since i've started practicing intermittent fasting again that's just been one of the biggest gifts it's like have the clarity mm. but also you suddenly have a lot more time <laughs> you're not, you're not all the time exactly. so that helps okay what is your biggest fasting pet peeve i'm just thinking there's something magical that negates the need for actually eating well you still need nutrients regardless of what your eating window is and if you skip eating for a week then hey you've skipped eating for a week and you need to make up those nutrients somehow so maybe shorter bursts that enable you to nourish your body more regularly might be a better approach. Yeah, I love that. And even if you are fasting, you can still develop energy toxicity. It's still possible. And for people like me that are big eaters, I believe me, I could still eat tons enough. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people end up eating more when they crunch their window down really, really, they go, well, six hours is not enough, so I'm going to get a four and then two. And what do you eat when you're that hungry in those two hours? Yeah, for sure. What's one thing you want people to know about fasting? 
Um, just that it's crucial to find the balance between fasting and, and eating and the two sides of the same coin, the yin and the yang, that you need to um, not eat sometimes and it'll be easier to not eat if you nourish your body and um, everything falls into place when you give your body exactly what it needs. I love it. This has been fantastic, Marty. I really hope that some of my listeners look you up, join your programs, try it out, and give you some data, data from all the plant-based people. That's what I'm hoping. Come on, y'all can do it. Yeah, bring on the plant-based data. And where can listeners connect with you, and what are the different products and services that you offer? Yeah, um, check out optimizingnutrition.com. Just Google optimizing nutrition or Marty Kendall. I've got, I just keep thinking of things and writing and analyzing the data to share it that resonates with some people like yourself, which is great to see. We've got the data-driven fasting challenges. We run eight of those a year. So a lot of people jump in and just do one and go, I just sort of started to learn about my body and I'm addicted to this. I want to keep coming back again and again. So it's that push for a while, take a break, push for a while. It works really well. We've got a macros masterclass, which guides people to dial in their macronutrients to suit their goals and a micros masterclass, which is all about just let's give your body exactly what it needs and find the gaps in your diet to uh, yeah, give your body the foods and meals that provide those harder to find nutrients for you. So it's not a one size fits all diet template. It's whatever your current diet is, what are the gaps and how can we fill them? And I just want everybody to know, all you listeners, that Marty provides an overabundance of information. So if you <laughs> love information, if you want to read, if you want to understand this stuff, so much he has for free on his site or even very low cost that if you're intimidated to jump into one of these groups, just start reading. And if it's something that's, you know, you feel like you, you know, got the courage to try, give it a try mm. because I feel like you support people very well. And on mm. the app that you use to communicate, you're always sharing things and sharing research. You're on top of the research. You're on top of all the new things coming out. So I really appreciate that. That's really great. All right, yeah, last question. Leave us with your number one tip to avoid energy toxicity for health and well-being. Um, yeah, avoid those foods that are the, you look at the label and it looks like an Oreo cookie that it's the sugar, starch, industrial seed oils and uh, a bunch of synthetic vitamins to compensate and, and go look for other foods that actually, you know, maybe don't have a label or uh don't have a barcode and will actually give your body what it's craving. I love it. Eat the whole foods, people. That's basically what mm -hmm. he's saying. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Right. Whatever your preference is, eat prioritize the whole natural the whole, foods. Whole foods. That is, you know, saying whole foods is actually pretty inclusive because that could include all the different communities. Yeah. Just stick with the whole ones. Yeah, totally. All right, totally. Marty. Uh, people in a micros masterclass eat a massive amount of vegetables. Their plates are piled up with green non-starchy veggies and they go i can't believe how much food this is and so feeling and satiating per calorie that's amazing i love it marty it's been so great to meet you virtually thank, thank you, you for all the work that you do thank you for your curiosity and thank yeah. you for your diligence in putting all this data together to give us information that we can use to improve our health well-being and our longevity so I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being on Veggie Doctor Radio. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. 
<laughs> Thanks so much, Yami. Great to meet you. Thanks, everyone. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.